is my number one tip for companies that are interested in, in beefing up their hiring strategy a little bit is making sure that it is a short process. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, hey, it's episode 150. Today, we're going to be getting some perspectives and answers to this important question. When will we actually close the skills gap in manufacturing? Our guest this week is Ann Wyatt, president and agency owner at Ann Wyatt Recruiting. Now, Ann is a longtime friend. She's been part of the Manufacturing Happy Hour community for a long time. And quite frankly, her appearance on this show is long overdue. It's also nice because that gives us a chance to have a bit more fun. We know one another and we get a bit more casual in this conversation, maybe than we typically would. So here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll get some fresh perspectives on the job market, some new ways for thinking about your hiring process and what you can do to stand out, whether your company is big or small. Second, we also get to hear about one of Anne's favorite industries and a couple more recruiting and retention lessons behind that. Finally, we learn how the job market has evolved in the past years and what it might look like in the future because of trends like Industry 4.0 as well as the workforce gap. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 150. That's 150. And if you are enjoying this show, please leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or over on Spotify, wherever you listen to it. And with that quick intro this week, let's head to Alabama to meet up with Ann Wyatt, where um, before we dive into the conversation, we have some very important musical business to cover first. Ann Wyatt, a longtime listener of the show, longtime member of the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community, and no more fitting of a guest for episode 150. And you know what the first question is. So where are we drinking, Ann? Describe this theoretical spot where we're having our conversation today. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I'm so happy to be here today, Chris. I really do appreciate being 150. This is awesome. Um, I think if we were drinking today, we should go celebrate at the Lips Lounge karaoke bar because, you know, I just love some karaoke and I love a good drink. I'm kind of boring on that. I will probably order a glass of red Cabernet and, uh, you know, just enjoy the vibes and uh, the singing and the hanging out. But it's uh, it's a pretty cool little venue. It's down there at Campus 805 next to uh, Straight to L Brewery. So I think uh, we could uh, stop by and tour that as well. Um, but yeah, really cool. Pink neon lights, stage, the whole thing. And uh, it's always a party. And uh, we talked about karaoke on Workforce 4.0, your show. So this this might be a repeat for anyone that listened to this. But, you know, hey, if a glass of cab is what gets the tunes flowing, that's A-OK. So let's say you do have that glass of cab. What is your go-to karaoke song? So 
the last time that I went and did karaoke, I did that by myself back in June, I think. And um, I sang uh, Truth Hurts by Lizzo. I've been wanting to sing that for a while. I wanted to try it out. So that's what I did. Um, it was a big hit. So that's a good karaoke song for me, as well as Raise Your Glass by Pink. And then I like Alanis. I'm a big Alanis Morissette fan. Um, and so all I really want is a good karaoke song for me. But I try to pick songs when I'm doing karaoke that I'm like, I can, you know, halfway sing a little bit. But those are those are three of my go to's. Yeah, that's I like how you started that with you wanted to try a Lizzo song because I feel I'm very much I go to karaoke. It's fun. I don't usually actively seek out karaoke just because I know I have enough friends that are in that bandwagon that at least two to three times a year I end up at a, a karaoke bar. But I like that you're adventurous, that it's not necessarily always the same picks because I'm in a different boat because I have my three go to songs. I do Centerfold by Jay Giles Band because the vocal range is easy. It's like a talk singing song. But for whatever reason, that doesn't get the crowd going as much as I think it would. So I'm very much usually uh, I have a beginning of the night song, which is One Week by Bare Naked Ladies, because if you can sing it, it's a crowd pleaser. It's fast. And then naturally, if the party's going or the party's getting revved up, usually this is two or so hours into karaoke. Fight for Your Right by the Beastie Boys all day long. Those are those are my moves. Epic. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, for sure. You do a great job with that. I think I really like your um, Bowling for Soup cover. I think you should do that one. I like I, that. And I like, um, have you tried Fallout Boy, Sugar We're Going Down? Seriously, in all seriousness. Like all the emo, I feel like you just pull it off so well. I think uh, you should... I've, I've played them before, like in bands. I haven't usually done them for, for karaoke. I don't know. I feel like just because part of my persona is so much that like pop punk element, I'm like, I should save that for when I'm actually playing an instrument versus karaoke. But back to vocal ranges, the vocal range on some of those is are, are tough, right? Like Bowling for Soup, when I did, for anyone listening, I did a cover of Bowling for Soup 1985. I called it COVID 1985. It was a spoof on Karen, the Karen personality <laughs> that we have, her ability to cope with COVID. Um, it's buried on the internet somewhere. I'll, sh I'll please link go, please go I'll, listen to it. I'll link up to it in the show notes. This is this is why I wanted to have you on because I knew we'd have a good five minute riff on non manufacturing topics before we got going today. But uh, yeah, those pop punk tunes, Fallout Boy, Bowling for Soup. The vocal range is tough. If I'm recording it in a studio, it's easier to do it. If it's on stage, that can get tricky. But uh, I digress. You and I could talk about pop punk and emo for a very long time. I think some of our most dedicated listeners know that about me as well. But today's episode is about you. So let's say we're there. We're at the karaoke bar. We're hanging out. You, you've just ripped through an Alanis Morissette song. The crowd's going wild. And after the applause had, has died down, you have a, a little bit of a break. So let's say someone starts talking to you. It's like, you know, that was a killer cover of Alanis Morissette, but I really want to talk to you about workforce. What is yes. one of the newest trends in workforce you're seeing right now, or one of the most surprising things maybe that you're seeing in this space? And how would you talk about that as if you were at a bar with someone? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I think that's how you have to, in some ways, approach these conversations in a more casual way. I think sometimes we get caught up on being really um, structured and uh, stiff, maybe, with some of these conversations, like on panels or um, 
you know, LinkedIn or whatever. But I think approaching it like that in a casual uh, way is important because I think that's going to be more meaningful and resonate more with folks. So I love that you're you're coming at me with that aspect, that perspective, right? Um, the things that are not surprising about workforce is that there is obviously a labor market shortage um, where we have a lot of jobs in the manufacturing sector and we don't necessarily have the skilled workforce to supplement those positions. Um, I think something that is surprising about the workforce right now is that um, it's resilient. And I think that, uh, you know, when I started out on this career trajectory and working in workforce development from th with the state of Kentucky and uh, all that good stuff that led me to recruiting, um, I think back then we were already having these conversations about the labor market shortage. And I think we have done a really good job, actually, of being proactive. Um, of course, you know, could we have done more? I mean, sure, you're always going to say we could have done more to, to supplement this gap that we're experiencing. But um, with that, I would like to bring up an important point that the skill set has changed along the way as well. So back in, you know, 2015, 2016, when we were talking about we should um, reskill and upskill the workforce, we were thinking predominantly about maintenance technicians and about welders and um, about how we're going to, you know, take our operators and implement um, more training to do more production-related tasks, as opposed to what I think we're talking about now, which is how are we going to take them and train them for mo more um, automation and controls tasks? And I think that has been an interesting shift that wasn't really recognizable before, is how that skill set has changed and how as we are developing technology and adopting it, that um, it's, it's kind of changing the whole landscape, right? So you talk about in 2016, we were thinking, okay, we're going to need like to replace these maintenance folks. But if I'm hearing you right, you're really saying we're bringing in more people that are tech focused, automation focused, et cetera. Is that a fair way to sum up what I just heard? <laughs> uh, yes, there more specifically, we were looking at industrial maintenance individuals from an, a mechanical perspective. Now we are looking at them from a mechatronics <laughs> perspective. Mm. So when we were laying out all of these plans back in 2016, we were talking about, you know, how do we grow our maintenance workforce um, and what skills do they need? And the skill sets of the mechanical side has been, I think, more replaced by the mechatronics side. And back then, we did not have a real word for mechatronics. It was more of like electrical, mechanical maintenance technician would have been the job title at that time. 
this makes a lot of sense. I'm interested to get your thoughts later in the interview of what things might look like in 2028, like five years down the line. We'll get there. Let's let's keep let's focus on the present a little bit first, though. When I think of recruiting, especially right now, I think of you're looking for replacing people that have retired and you're looking to get the next generation of talent, entry level folks. Do those go hand in hand? Which group are you like doing the most placements for right now? Or is it a totally other group that that you're focused on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think that's pretty symbolic of the industry overall. You are seeing this gray wave of uh, folks that are retiring and leaving the industry. And that was really kind of what prompted that initial conversation all those years ago, right? Um, was that projection coming down the line. Um, so I think on top of that, though, you have to consider that with replacing individuals that are retiring, we have also added a great deal of openings to the sector. So there's been countless greenfield sites built, countless expansions done, and all the while we're kind of adding more manufacturing jobs. Um, so you have both of those factors. And then, you know, to your other point here about attracting uh, upcoming workforce, that's a huge part of it as well. Um, that's not something that I specifically do professionally as much as I do personally advocate for it. Um, I'm more focused on engineers, technical talent, and then mid to C-level um, openings. So that's going to be more focused in that crowd rather than the entry level um, folks. But I think that we have a lot of potential to taking some of those transferable skills from other industries with seasoned professionals and attracting them to our manufacturing industry. And I think that's really where we have to get stronger. What are, because this is a great point, what are the most transferable skills that manufacturers aren't taking advantage of? right now? I think that a lot of your soft skills are still being overlooked, honestly. Um, I think at the end of the day, I have a lot of clients that, you know, will, will say um, attitude is almost greater than aptitude at this point. Like if you come in and you have a positive attitude and you're willing to work at it, then we can train you all day. Um, I think that that is probably the biggest transferable skill that if I were in another industry sector and I, it's just, you've got to want it. You've got to want it, right? So you've got to be motivated. You've got to be um, a self-starter. You've got to have the right attitude to do your very best. But I think uh, there there's also kind of this um, adoption of innovation that the sector really stands to, you know, we could have more of that in our industry in some ways. And um, I think by adopting and borrowing other professionals from other industry sectors would give us the opportunity to expand on those skill sets and, and also get some more innovation, um, more creative ideas, which I think is also a top soft skill. I'm interested in your opinion on this this doesn't need to be like a fact-based 
answer more. It, it can be your opinion, but I, I just got back on a little vacation, a road trip with a couple of my buddies in the hospitality industry. And I wonder is like, where, where do you go for people with where, what industry do you look towards for people that have good soft skills? What industry do you look towards for people that are naturally innovative? I'm, I mean, I just threw out, hey, hospitality, maybe we should be pulling in more people from the hospitality industry. I don't know. I'm interested in your perspective on where maybe some adjacent industries are that we should be paying attention to. Well, I think technology to the tech industry is a good fit. Yeah. Um, I think. I think that our industry will have to change some. I think we're going to have to. The landscape is going to have to change. There is going to have to be a little bit more innovation and technology in the manufacturing industry to support the skills gap. It's just got to happen. Um, But I think that that's a great uh, industry sector with with professionals to tap into. Um, As long as we can do some things on the human side to ensure that there is a good transition there. Yeah. But I would pick tech first. Hospitality is a good one um, because there are a lot of soft skills associated with hospitality, right? Yeah. Um, so that that would be an easy industry to adapt. <laughs> yeah, I'm so wondering I- when we're going to crack this tech nut, if you will, right? Because I know we've... <laughs> I wrote an uh, article about that like six months ago on, hey, now's the time to start recruiting talent from the tech industry. And I saw a little bit of that out in the Bay Area where the Venn diagram overlap of the makerspace, people in robotics had quite a bit of overlap with the folks in the, let's say the the traditional, I don't want to call it traditional because it's like when we talk tech, we're usually talking software, but there was overlap with that software and tech world. I have another question. This one's a little different. It's more on the the hiring and recruiting process. Like what percentage of companies would you say are leveraging a modern recruiting and hiring process? Doesn't need to be best in class, but at the very least companies that aren't stuck in the past with the way they're doing their recruiting, onboarding the whole nine yards. That's a great question. I think it depends on your perspective. I think, um, you know, we have to keep in mind it's 2023. Um, so when I first started, when I first started my career and and workforce development and recruiting and all of that stuff, you know, we were really dependent on job boards and that was a huge transition for folks anyway. Um, so I did a lot of classes on just soft skills development, reemployment skills And one of the things that we covered in those classes was um, how that transition has taken place and what that looks like today. So um, a lot of the folks that I worked with during that time were still laid off from uh, the 2008 recession. And the job search landscape had totally shifted gears. Um, So it was hard for folks to really do their job searching because it was it was a collective of individuals that they were used to being able to look up classified ads and walk in and see a help wanted sign and put in an application and talk to somebody right then and there and be interviewed and 
leave that establishment with a job. I don't think that it's necessarily been like that in a long time. Um, I think we made that transition over to job boards back in uh, 2010 or so, probably before that. Um, and since then, I think it's even gotten a little bit more progressive. So if you look at some of the strategies that companies are taking now, if you're still posting on those job boards like you were back in that time, I don't think that you're being on trend with your recruiting. Um, and mostly because it is such a high candidate driven market right now, still. Um, so job boards operate on the premises and the principle that I'm out there actively looking for a job. In this day and age, you are recruiting people into your company. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of marketing outreach. That's a lot of, that's a lot of cold calling. That's a lot of cold emailing. Um, that's a lot of research to make sure that you're attracting the right individuals from the right industry niche. Um, because, you know, if you're, if you're talking to, we'll just say a mechanical engineer from the food and bev industry, that's not necessarily going to be the right fit for a mechanical engineer opening for, um, like a metals, a metals manufacturer, Right. So you have to really know your stuff. And it's got to be a super proactive approach where you spend a lot of time marketing, a lot of time in and be willing to, you know, list build and contacting individuals. And then how you how you incorporate your company brand with that has to resonate too. So having a strong LinkedIn strategy, uh, making sure that you're delivering employee testimonials on your LinkedIn page and featuring them on your LinkedIn page. Um, I say LinkedIn. Facebook is also another good tool for that. Um, but making sure that you have that presence there is super important because people in their spare time are going to be on social media and you're going to catch them, catch them there, um, not during working hours or, uh, you know, for other personal gains, right? Um, so having that strategy is super important. After saying all this, I would say that 30% of companies maybe do that effectively and well. Yeah. No, fair, fair point. I like that you used the word marketing at least two to three times in that answer. It's funny because when I talk to like potential sponsors of this podcast, right? I often tell them it's like, hey, leads and new business are part of it. But where a lot of my partners get the most return on this show is using this as part of their hiring process. Say, hey, listen to this podcast to hear what our culture is all about. So that's a little behind the scenes for for the listeners. But I, I love agree. that idea. Yeah, no, I, I agree that hiring is all about marketing. You basically mentioned that, hey, since it's a candidate's market right now, people aren't going to the job boards. It's about how you market your company and get people to think about you on a regular basis and say to themselves, gosh, I would certainly love to work at company XYZ. So great way to describe that. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. 
This episode is sponsored by Traction. Now, I just got to know this company not too long ago after interviewing their founder, Igor Marinelli, on this podcast. Traction is an all-in-one hardware software solution that integrates condition monitoring IoT sensors and an asset management software, and it's all designed to make maintenance more streamlined, reliable, and profitable. Honestly, after hearing Igor's story, this doesn't come as a surprise, seeing as how he too worked on a maintenance team at a paper mill and has since been on a mission to empower frontline workers. Igor and the team at Traction are doing this through a predictive maintenance solution that is the most advanced on the market due to their patented USPTO-recognized fault detection technology. By having accurate and actionable data and by preventing faults before they actually happen, Traction is saving manufacturers an average of $10 million per trimester. If you want to learn more about Traction, head to Traction.com. And if you want to hear Igor's full story and why he believes frontline workers are at the center of manufacturing innovations, then tune into episode 127 by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127 or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to today's episode. I have another question in a similar vein, because I'm guessing most of our audience that listens to this, if they take time out of their day to listen to a manufacturing podcast, they care about their career and their company. So I'm going to just take a little guess that the audience out here is probably in the better 50% of people with their hiring processes. They're not completely antiquated. They're probably not totally relying on job boards. They recognize it's about company brand and employer brand. So if you're hiring technical talent, what are some simple but effective ways that people can lower the friction in their hiring processes? Again, assuming this is for an audience that's covering some of the blocking and tackling, right? They, they have a bit more of a modern approach to how they do their hiring. Well, the first thing that you've got to do is act quickly. Um, so there is a saying in sales that I'm sure that you're familiar with and a lot of our friends are familiar with, but I think gets lost in translation in the HR world. And that is time kills all deals. So, and again, if it's a candidate market, there are multiple deals. I would go in with the idea and the mentality of this candidate probably has three or four offers on the table. So um, making sure that you have a short hiring process right now is super imperative. Um, when I design kind of my own strategy and my own recruiting uh, plan, I wanted to make sure that I got the entire process from start to finish. That's intake, that is research, that is all the marketing materials and out the door to uh, final interview rounds and offer letters going out within a month. So that that would translate to two weeks at the most of coordinating with the candidate. Um, and the reason was being because I was in that situation that I think of a lot of recruiters can resonate with and, and speak, speak on. Um, but you're getting like fall offs. You're getting candidate fall offs, right? Or turndowns where candidates are saying, you know, they're coming back and saying, well, you know, I've got three offer letters. I need to think about it. And then um, they go with the other, they go with the other offer. And I think traditionally we kind of get tied up with, well, you know, the thought of, well, you know, was it, uh, did, were we not competitive enough? Right. But I think at the, at the end of the day, it's not really even about being competitive enough as much as it is having 
less less red tape to walk through and and less things that you know the candidate has to do to get from point A to point B. So that is my number one tip for companies that are interested in in beefing up their hiring strategy a little bit is making sure that it is a short process. Um, A second tip of mine is making sure that you, again, use some of those company branding materials to really represent yourself as a company. Um, And that's that's not difficult. I've seen companies spend a lot of money hiring a a production crew and all that. And I mean, that's great if you can do that, if you want to do that. If you're a smaller company, an SME that maybe has 100 employees or so, that's probably not going to be as feasible. But there is some there are great resources online like video editing tools where you could put together uh, just a simple video that explains your process. Um, if you want to use your own employees for that, you can. If not, um, there are even, I mean, there's, you know, clip art, essentially, right, Um, to where you can insert that. And I've been successful doing that in finding a lot of even like machinery focused, like specific PLC type of just of just clip art that you can put in there. I think it's interesting that uh, I like that you bring up the importance of as your second point, number one, time kills all deals, right? That's the that's number one. But number two, having that employer branding material. And I would expect big companies to have a bit more robust setup when it comes to the type of material they're able to produce because they have more money. I I just wonder why smaller companies don't double down on, let's say, some of that scrappy material like some cool TikToks or something that looks a bit more raw, but is kind of reflective about their brand a little bit. There's a way to balance professional and scrappy. I'm curious, do you see some of these smaller companies do that well, or do they just get stuck and they're like, well, if we can't do high production, we're not going to do it at all? I think, yeah, I think people freak out about it. You know, I do. I think they get kind of like gun shy or or just like wet feet about it. They're like, everything has to be perfect. I'm like that too. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes I'm like, everything has to be perfect. It has to be, um, you know, pretty and and polished and all of this. But I'll tell you, some of my favorite TikToks are Universal Robotics and I will die on that hill. Like, I I love their TikTok feed. You know, it's fun. It's simple. It's refreshing. I think it's a great recruitment strategy. Um, All right. So you're saying Universal Robots, despite being a huge company, has a more raw, down-to-earth TikTok strategy. Did I hear that correctly? I think so. I think their TikTok strategy is pretty um, is pretty raw. Now, they may come back and say, you know, like, this took us hours or whatever. But um, I think anything on TikTok, I think just the platform lends itself to just being like, you know, casual. I mean, what I've found with Instagram reels and these TikTok-like platforms is if you can have something cool in the first one second, that's what sets it apart. Like we were talking about uh, emo music and punk rock at the start of this. I run a, a separate specific punk rock account and I grabbed some footage from a show I was at this weekend. And it was specifically 
when a bunch of people were stage diving and crowd surfing, right? Because that was the cool part to get. It didn't matter if it was the middle of the breakdown or not. That was the cool part to capture. And lo and behold, you know, it's got over 100 views so far for and for an account that only has 300 followers. That's pretty good. So I'll, I'm not going to say what that account is. If the if the rest of the world out there wants to go search for what Chris Lukey's professional emo brand is, they can they can have fun hunting for that on the Internet. But I, I, I like what you're saying in that regard of, hey, it, you've you know, it doesn't need to be the most polished. And sure, maybe it doesn't take just five minutes to get out there. Maybe there is some time that goes into it, but it doesn't need to be a five figure investment in a production company to get it done. I think that the most of the time, I think we get caught up on that and we want it to be pretty and polished. I think that that's not quality time, though. And you have to understand the difference of this is for just a brief introduction to our company that does not supplement the one-on-one time you give to a candidate. So as we get to the the final questions in our conversation, I, I have to ask you something I just saw you do recently. You were at a company called Blenco Glass. Am I making that up? Blinko, yeah. What yeah, is it, Blinko? So, so, yeah. so first of all, I didn't know you were a glass collector. Tell us a little bit about that first. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, yeah, so <laughs> no one's asked me about that. This is exciting. I love glass. Yeah, so my mom was born and raised in Zanesville, Ohio, and she still has a lot of family or she you know, she's passed, but uh, her family is all still up there. And then over in Parkersburg, West Virginia, I had to go up there for uh, for a funeral. I don't want to get into that too much, whatever. But, you know, my brother and my sister-in-law, we drove up to West Virginia. And on the way back, we were like, oh, man, we're up here. You know, we don't ever get up there as much as we want to because we're all so crazy busy. And we're like driving. We're like on the way back. We're like, oh, man, we can stop at the Blinko Glass Place. <laughs> Um, so we, we took a detour over there to Milton, West Virginia and stopped Blinko Glass Place. And my mom had taken me there once before when I was like 14 and I did not have an appreciation for glass like I do now. Um, but I, um, I have a lot of her pieces and she, over the years, as I got older and more mature, you know, and started to to enjoy that kind of thing, she, uh, took me to the glass factory um, at that point. Um, and I wasn't as interested and I didn't think I, I was not, I was not, I was 14. I was not there for it. So um, this time though, I was like, oh yeah, let's go watch and make some glass, you know? And so we go out to the observation deck and my sister-in-law starts talking to the HR director. And I mean, we were there for like an hour, y'all <laughs> talking about how glass is made and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it was something that we used to do when she was alive, and it just means a lot to me. I love the story. I appreciate you giving the the honest background on this. I have a method to my madness for asking this question because I saw a comment you made about this experience was a lot of these people started as like glass handlers or not, let's say they were in the entry-level roles. They weren't the craftswomen and craftsmen behind the process, but they moved their way up into that oh, role yeah. over time. And and the reason I want to ask this is what's a career path for this next generation of employees look like? 
in this day and age? Because as oh, as gosh. trades become more in vogue, I'm curious, what do you think we're going to see out there in the market? Are you going to see these type of career paths like the ones at Blanco come back into play? What do you think? Um, yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I think yes. I mean, I think if you can do that now, do it today. Um, because I think that's such a great way to get uh, folks into the industry and move them up. And I, I remember talking to this HR director and, um, we were kind of talking about the process and what that looks like, the transit, the career transitions. And this whole time I didn't tell him that, you know, this is like, I'm a, a little bit of a nerd about all this. Um, so I was just asking him some, some questions and, and, you know, I didn't really want to get into too much of my stuff as much as his stuff. Um, but so he just kept breaking it down, right? He was like, okay, so they start here and then they move over to here and this position takes this long to move into. Um, and then this, uh, gentleman over here, who's like the master craftsman, he's been here for 40 years and he was telling us his story. And I think, that that's such an important part of culture. So I, and that's, I'm saying that because you have to do both. If you can start today with building some sort of apprenticeship program into your plant floor, I think you've got to do it. But I think that you have to have the other piece to really kind of keep the employee experience and engagement high. So you have to also build that into your culture and make that more of like all of these stories and and be willing to spend the time and orate those. And um, I think that'll encourage folks to want to continue down that career trajectory. So, um, you know, I think with the way we're moving with the workforce and the way that technology is also being implemented along the way, um, I, I believe that the career trajectories should be shorter in the amount of time than, you know, probably, probably previously thought. So if somebody's going to come in entry level like they did at Blinko, um, you know, they'll be working in that position for six months to, you know, maybe a year before they come up to that next step. And they learn all different aspects of the plant. So next step is, you know, they move into a more quality role where um, it's their job to actually hold this wooden or uh, metal um, cast, you know, for the glass as it's being poured. And this is an important job. It's not just, you know, you're sitting here holding a mold. You're actually sitting here learning the process, observing everybody's roles, and then you're also um, adjusting for quality because you have to be so quick because the way glass sets, right? Yeah. Um, and then once you learn that role, then, you know, you move on to the next role. But, you you know, you essentially work the entire plant. You work in quality, you work in production, you work in um, from entry level to, you know, all the way up. And I think that's crucial. We have to, we have to do that in manufacturing. I think when we talk about collaboration, that's what we mean. We have to break down the silo departments. I, I have a question, very mildly random, I'll say. Have you ever been to Murano, Italy, or are you familiar with Murano, Italy? I'm not. Should I put this on my bucket list? Should I go? You probably should. It's a it's a short boat ride away from Venice, but I believe, and if anyone listens to this has more context on it, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe 
it is famous for being a glass-blowing island, like not too far from Venice, where I'm sure it's more artisanal these days, just based on the logistics of getting in and out. But I remember taking uh, a little boat ride over there with my dad when we were there, probably like 13 years ago, ended up at like some church picnic, having some great Italian food, going to see a glass blowing demonstration. I would add that to your bucket list if if I'm uh, correct. Yes. Yes. Let's do that. All right. Added. All right. <laughs> All right. We're adding to the bucket list. We're talking about karaoke. We've covered some ground today. I have a couple more questions for you. And as we've talked about, you've hinted at some of this stuff like apprenticeship programs becoming more in vogue. I think our audience is familiar with that. He talked about what recruiting looked like back in 2016. We were looking for mechanical roles. Now that's shifted more to mechatronics and automation. So, Anne, look into your crystal ball. What's your prediction two years from now in the hiring landscape? Oh, man. Um, let's see. Two years from now. Well, um, I'm going to say I'm going to say this, but, you know, I have to give you the backstory because that's like that's just my process here. But um, I think two years from now, we're still going to be in a skills gap. And I say that because I think with the supply chain and all of that, we're 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 recovering from that. It's better than it was. So that's good. But I still don't think it's back to where it was pre-COVID. In addition to that. We're also doing a lot more reshoring and nearshoring. So when I hear reshoring and nearshoring, I hear jobs. Yeah. Um, Good point. So that's, yeah. So I think we're still going to be in that, uh, that skills gap because, again, you know, we, while we're having folks leave the industry, we are also having more jobs come open. Um, so I think we're still going to be dealing with that. I think that technology is going to be a lot more on the floor than it is now. I think it has to be, right? Because there's just, I mean, there's, look, (laughs) I'm looking at the numbers and I'm looking at our workforce and it just, we're going to have to supplement some. We're going to have to, right? So we're going to have a lot more uh, cobots and things of that nature that are going to be implemented. Um, and then, you know, I think we're going to reskill some of our, our current workforce and promote them. And um, I don't know. I think it's going to be, I think we're going to going through this transition right now. I think we're going to be closer to like what what people would say like industry 4.0 would be or or whatever. You know, okay. I think we're going to be a lot closer to that. What we'll about see. five years down the line? That's 2028. I'm curious because we keep saying how I think, and this is an old stat. It's a few years old. It's like 1.8 million people will retire between now and like 2030. So we're at like peak retirement at that point. I mean, it, it, I, I would have trouble predicting it. I'm curious if you have like, do you think we'll be closer to achieving Industry 4.0 and closing the skills gap. Are you optimistic or are you borderline pessimistic? Maybe is the way to ask that question. Ah, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I think it's best for the industry if we are closer to Industry 4.0. Um, I think 
I, I mean, it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. But I think we're going to have to because, it, you know, we've we've just got to build the infrastructure. We've got to make it happen um, for the sake of the industry and for the economy and for our own, our own sake. So I think we will be closer. I think we're still going to have, um, I think it'll be, I think you'll see larger companies there by that yeah. point. Okay. Um, All right. And then I think you'll see some, some medium companies there. I'm excited to revisit that two to five years down the line because we'll still be doing this two to five years down the line. So these, uh, we'll look back into that crystal ball and see how correct we were. So plenty of plenty of other unpredictable variables that can come up in between now and then. But we've got to start wrapping. So another question you know that's coming your way is, and what's something you wish I would have asked you that didn't come up during today's conversation? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, it's my favorite question that you do. Ask, ask me, I don't know, ask me about retention. Retention. <laughs> All right. All right. What's uh so we've talked about recruiting. What's what's your what are your thoughts on retention in that case? Um yeah, I think that the candidate experience doesn't stop once you go through the onboarding process and I think that you've got to uh really commit yourself to your culture on a daily daily basis. Um and I think it's important to always maintain that constant contact. Mm. And that will improve your retention rates drastically. It sounds like we'll need a part two for this at some point to cover that. So next time we talk about retention. But in the meantime, Anne, where's the best spot to find you? And and give the audience like a little one minute commercial on Anne Wyatt recruiting. We need to know what what you do as well as we wrap this up. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, I do HR consulting and recruiting, obviously. Um you can find me directly on LinkedIn at A. Wyatt Recruits and all major social media platforms with the same handle. My email address is awyatt at com. And again, I customize search plans based on your company's experience and needs. And I do a little bit of uh, retention and, and culture consultation too. Excellent. Well, I will have all of those areas to link up with you in the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And thank you so much for this 150th episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour. Hopefully the next time we're hanging out, we're doing some karaoke as well. I appreciate you jumping on. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, thank you for listening. As always, if you want to learn more, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 150. That's where you can connect with Anne. That's where you can connect with Anne Wyatt Recruiting for all of your recruiting and hiring needs. And of course, that's where you can find info on the Lips Lounge in Huntsville, Alabama. Looks like a pretty cool spot. It's in this area called Campus 805. I think she mentioned it. Just a hip nightlife area somewhere I need to check out at some point. And yes, I will even include a link to that ridiculous parody video that I sang during the pandemic if you want to dig that up on the internet as well. Whether or not you know bowling for soup, you might get a kick out of this. 
Anyway, with that, I want to thank our sponsor, Traction. I also want to mention, I think Ann and I were talking about this in the middle of the interview. If you're interested in having someone come out to do keynotes for your manufacturing organization, your sales team, whoever that is, that is something I do on a regular basis. I don't just jump behind the microphone for parody videos. I do keynotes as well. So if you're interested in that, shoot an email over to info at manufacturinghappyhour.com, subject line, keynote, and we can keep the conversation going from there. And just like the intro, we're keeping this outro short and sweet. We'll catch you again next week. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.